Hello, Malcolm. Hello, Simone. It's wonderful to be here with you today. What are we talking about? I believe we're talking about revolutions and the model for revolutions that you came up with the other day that surprised me. You always accredit things to me. I don't know why, you know, but whatever. Because you come up with all the ideas. I ask dumb questions sometimes, which is apparently helpful. Well, this is in reference to the previous post where I was saying it's actually very rarely the, the most downtrodden class in society that leads to any form of a revolution. Actually, this is really interesting. You can see this uh, sort of across societies during colonial periods Hmm. where the colonies that would revolt first were often the wealthiest colonies, like the American colonies, where like the average citizen was taxed less than the average citizen in the UK was taxed at the same time period when they were revolting over taxes without representation. And, uh, you know, I, I think that it's really interesting to look at like why revolutions happen. And we sort of came up with a predictive model, which we want to apply to online communities, because I think it can tell us who's going to win the online culture war and how groups can win the online culture war. But you would also say that this transfers to broadly speaking governments and yeah, broadly speaking governments, et cetera. And it, it doesn't always hold true, but it, When it doesn't hold true, you can see sort of proof of the model through the ways it doesn't hold true. Mm. All right. So go ahead. Walk us through. So society can broadly be thought of as existing in five factions, although often there's really four that matter. Okay. So you have the urban disenfranchised group. You have the rural disenfranchised group. You have the economic elite and you have the social elite. Those are the most important classes. And then you also have the military as sort of a fifth class that can sometimes matter in this equation. The difference between the economic elite and the social elite is the economic elite are those with the most economic power within an institution. Although, you know, within a a communist system or something like this, they're just the people who sort of control the means of production to some extent, because people often end up controlling that within those systems. The social elite are the individuals you are supposed to respect the most and whose opinions you are supposed to respect the most within a society. So historically, this could be like a religious caste, but within our existing society, it would be things like journalists and professors. It would be the people who you are supposed to respect, even if Mm. they don't have economic wealth. So Mm. historically, it really would have been the priest caste most. Okay. Or or the church. Religious Uh, leaders. Even if you aren't supposed to, like, even if like the priests don't have a lot of wealth, you are supposed to respect them. Within our existing society, I mean, you could say this is a sign of like a fallen society or whatever. It is academic accredited individuals as well as journalists. Mm. So... The most common thing that leads to a revolution, and this is why communism is so often used as the motivation for a revolution, is that the uh, the social elite want the wealth that the economic and the power that the economic elite have. So the social elite, and this is why in a society where you can ensure your social elite have a lot of wealth and power, you are very likely to have government turnover. So. 
in a society where you have a huge disparity, where the social elite have very, very little wealth and power, that is where you are most likely to have a lot of people calling for revolution. And that is our existing society now. If you look at journalists, they have very little economic stability. Like it is like a terrible paying job. And, and it's a job where they're constantly about to be fired because, you know, it's, it's increasingly irrelevant. And then you have the professor class, which is also just like a giant pyramid scheme now because everyone's moving for this social status. And there are far more people who have achieved the minimum qualifications for it to apply for these positions or the maximum qualifications even. When you, when you contrast with the, the number of positions of this largely parasitic caste, I mean, they produce very little in terms of increased production in society. So they can only survive by taking money basically from the disenfranchised groups. I mean, they'll claim they take money from the economic elite of society, but it's very hard to take money from the economic elite of society. So they take money from the disenfranchised groups and the economic elite take money from the disenfranchised groups. But they can- Wait, walk me through this though. If uh, let's say an academic is primarily making money through like Harvard's endowment, which- funds most of their research how well, are they making are not making money from the endowments they're making money from tuition that's why tuition is so freaking high hmm. and most of the people who are getting this tuition are getting something that doesn't really help their career does not help their earning potential but is subsidizing the lifestyle of this social elite caste within our society and hmm. if you look at why tuitions are so high it's these ridiculous government-backed loans I mean, I would say if there was one thing the conservatives should be fighting more than anything is the government-backed loan system. Because when you have a government-backed loan that you cannot get out of through bankruptcy, which you can't a student loan, which is why if you look at the cost of a university degree now and you amortize that over the cost of your life, you typically are getting about a net neutral often. And it's, 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 it's not totally at that point yet, but the cost of university is continuing to rise. And I expect that cost to stop rising when its value is about 10 to 25% higher than the, its amortized value over the cost of your life, over your entire life. Because, uh, and, and the reason I expect it to go to a bit higher is because it gives you this a bit of social status or something like that. So, I mean, we are living in a society now where the social elite are in this absolutely terrible position when contrasted with the economic elite. So they have every motivation to say, let's redistribute wealth. And they try to encourage the dispossessed groups in our society, the urban and rural dispossessed groups in our society to join their cause with the, the impetus that they will redistribute wealth to them. What they really often mean is they plan to run this apparatus that redistributes wealth. And through running that apparatus, they expect some level of, um, if not more wealth than other people, less work per the wealth that they have access to, while still having access to their same voice boxes and social status within society. Hmm. Now, where this becomes really interesting is who actually wins revolutions. Um, and this is where within our existing society, there is actually very little real risk of a revolution from the left. And that is to really have a powerful, and, and this is also when I talk about the social elite and stuff like that, this is also why when you look across societies, revolutions are often usually started by students or student groups or stuff like that, because that is where the social elite often have the most power to ferment revolution. 
So, and, and because those people expect to eventually be at the top of the new social elite within the economic system once it has been reestablished. So they court the urban dispossessed. The problem being is that the urban dispossessed are largely irrelevant in revolutions. To maintain power, you need the rural dispossessed on your side. This is what you see in places like Russia and Turkey today. The reason why you are so unlikely to see any sort of revolution within these places is when you do see these rebellious groups begin to ferment dissent, the rural groups are firmly on the side of the existing power structure. And so you are very unlikely to get a revolution. So why is this the case? Why is it that the rural dispossessed are so much more important than the urban dispossessed? It's because the urban dispossessed typically rely on a very complex social structure. They rely on supply lines to get their foods. They often are much more reliant on social programs and much more reliant on the government to essentially give them food and everything like that. But in addition to that, they're much more reliant on society more broadly continuing to work. Whereas the rural dispossessed are much more, have a much easier time feeding themselves, et cetera. Second, urban dispossessed require much fewer troops to pacify when they need to be pacified. Right, uh, because they're all in the same place. Roughly. Yeah, they're all in the same place. Round, they're basically rounded up already. Exactly. Rural dispossessed can attack basically wherever they want. So you have to distribute your troops across a large rural region, and then the 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 rebels or the rebellious group can pick and choose the location of the fighting to some extent because they can, you know, you, you either you kill them all, right? Which then loses you one of the core resources you often want in those areas, which is the people and their knowledge of tilling land and stuff like that. Or you prevent their movement, which can be very hard to do. So as they can move together and attack wherever they want within a community, they can target thinner troops, which makes them very, very hard to keep down. And you can't just control them by sieging them. And by sieging them, what I mean is disrupting supply lines, keeping food from entering your neighborhood. Well, you see this with places like not just attempts to, we'll say, change things in the Middle East, you know, like a foreign incursions into the Middle East, but also the United States revolution, you know, the colonial revolution. And one yeah. of the reasons we won was because the rural disenfranchised were able to essentially fight back, right? I mean, several cities were burned down. I mean, all the people in, in, in urban areas were actually quite exposed and were actually... Yeah. And what people often imagine when they hear this is that the rural population are the ones necessarily doing the majority of the fighting, but that's not really true. Mm -hmm. If you just have the sympathy of the rural rural population they'll find the cave you're hiding in they'll find your safe house and they will deliver you food and supplies which is much harder to do in cities because you can much more easily control the flows of food and supplies and, and mm -hmm. mark food and supplies as this is going here this is going here mm -hmm. where this is relevant to the online world well so one where this is relevant to our existing society is if you look at progressive groups in the u.s that are trying to ferment revolution they almost holistically focus on urban populations which are essentially useless in a revolution, unless those urban populations do not have 
these systems that are meant to support them. So this is what you saw in the Russian revolution of the initial communist revolutions in Russia under sort of the czarist regime. Because during those revolutions, the urban populations did not have infrastructure that was supplying them with food. They did not have all the, they did not have like, any sort of resources that were going to them because of the state. They did not have any of the benefits that exist within current urban populations that make them so hard. Really, the only benefit that they had was that they were slightly easier to siege, which is can be pretty hard in an urban environment when you have sort of unification and this population is used to supporting itself, which mm -hmm. is what you kept seeing in the Russian wars during these periods. Whenever somebody would try to siege an urban area, these populations were so used to supporting themselves, they were used to incredible hardship. And so it was very hard to actually siege these populations. But in an existing world economy, almost all urban populations have these benefits to some extent, which make them very useless in a revolution. Now, what gets interesting is how does this apply to the online world? Right. So if you're looking at the online world, you can see the economic elite as the people who own the platforms, the social elite are the moderators. They are the people who can decide and the military to some extent is the people who can decide to have platforms shut down. Like when the okay, government- So like the military could be China or Germany or India yeah, yeah, yeah. choosing Where to shut down, shut down like platform. Twitter or Facebook or- Within their country, Snapchat. right? But within but America- like the US the military, trying to shut down- It doesn't TikTok. matter. The point being is that in yes. America, the military within online sphere is largely irrelevant. So okay. you have the people who own the platforms who are- like the Zuckerberg economic, or Musk or yes. Or, or Facebook or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. They're- predominantly progressive in orientation these days. It was Musk being the major alternative here, who's very progressive, broadly speaking. He's just not in line, like lockstep with every single thing the existing progressive regime wants. But then you have the other group, which is the, uh, the moderators, who are the social elite within this organization. They don't necessarily have a real economic power, and they don't gain economic power from the people within their communities often, but they do have social power, and they do exercise that social power. Mm -hmm. So that being the case, who is the rural dispossessed and who are the urban dispossessed? Right. Within the online communities, the urban dispossessed are those who live online within social communities that are controlled by these social elite and economic elite. So, or, or where they have complete dominion. So this would be places like Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, stuff like that. Whereas the urban dispossessed are the ones who are in these communities that you can't really stamp down. Be so this would be things like 4chan. And you mean the rural dispossessed are those who are- Yeah, rural dispossessed. 4chan, yeah. borough forums, mm -hmm. you know, HN or whatever. You know, if you get rid of one of these, uh, another one pops up somewhere else. Yeah, like the literally no government or centralized authority or owner of a platform could take it down. Yeah, and they often don't have moderators. So they have more of a sort of true equality of voices within their community where the best ideas win. And because the people who come to these communities are the ones who often feel the most silenced by moderators within sort of the urban dispossessed of the online sphere, they're often those with the views that most contrast with the mainstream views among moderators. Considering that the moderators within these communities have largely been owned by the progressive sphere that has pushed the conservatives more to this online world just possessed community. Hmm. 
Unfortunately, what this means is that these individuals, or not unfortunately, unfortunately from the perspective of a progressive mindset, are, are going to be very hard to stamp out and will probably ultimately win the online culture war. This is why when you look at the online culture of today, whether it's like any major theme, whether it's memes or new music treads or new social treads like bronies or the Trump administration or MAGA or you know, whatever, all of this started in the rural dispossessed of the online sphere. Hmm. They all started in places like 4chan. Yeah, so um, it's the equivalent of like strange militias coming out of the countryside yeah, or this, weird movements. The CCP Foundation. The Well, no, it's interesting because it's very different than the world today. Usually in the world today, if you're talking about like the physical world, yeah. new I, trends, whether it's fashion or well, ideas. typically come from the cities. Yeah, they from the urban the dispossessed, right? Yeah, but it, the reason you see something different in the online sphere is the moderator class has taken such control Hmm. of what's being said within these urban online environments that anyone who really wants to challenge the existing system has to go to these rural locations. And so they may not ideologically agree with the entire rural location. I mean, I doubt like the people who started the Brony movement were like far right away or anything like that, right? <laughs> but... Um, they would have been laughed at or said they were trolling. I mean, what's funny is even 4chan used to try to ban their content for a long time and then largely gave up because the culture of this community was one of the mods are asleep, you know, post the thing that annoys them most. Yeah. And it's also created this culture, which is becoming increasingly important, I think, in the political landscape today, the internet increases in importance of trolling. But because mm. the trolls are the people who are kicked out of these urban communities the most into these online rural communities. So that's why trolling has become such an important part of the generative culture today. When I talk about generative culture, I'm talking about culture that's generating genuinely new ideas and new ways and new forms of art and stuff like that, which you often see coming out of, of, of these areas. Mm -hmm. So what's the... What is the physical equivalent of a troll like in history or in current culture? Just like weirdos who get kicked out of cities because they don't. Yeah. Weirdos and those, who get kicked out of cities. Those weirdos. The witches. Of the, yeah, yeah, I guess. You know, yeah, witches like witches often were killed. They lived by the, the, the ponds doing their weird stuff that everyone was like, you are a weirdo and you are annoying people. Yeah. But I was also going to say. So a really interesting thing about this phenomenon and a huge mistake that the progressive part of the online culture is making right now is they think that they gain power by turning urban dispossessed groups into rural dispossessed groups. So an example I'd make here is you would have a community like Tumblr in Action or something mm -hmm. like that. A big mistake you often see the moderator class making these days is they exercise their power by totally banning or completely disenfranchising groups, which turns a group where they used to have say or power into a totally rural dispossessed group. And they think that through doing this, they have won. So an example might be they take a community like Tumblr in action, right? And they will ban that group or they'll ban red pill groups. And then these communities reform within iterations of the communities that are often much smaller in terms of user count, but the users that they are able to maintain are now uninfluenceable by the mainstream online culture hmm. and much more generative to future online culture. 
So you can look at stuff like, you know, we often talk about the red pill movement or the men's right or the mixed town movement. A lot of these movements got nuked within like Reddit and stuff like that, where the mods mm-hmm. used to have power over them. Felt we probably would have never seen that movement, whether or not you think it's for better or worse, had the initial moderators of things like Reddit not banned those communities and forced them into the rural dispossessed communities where they began to generate more generative content. So what um, you're saying is by quote unquote banning hate speech and, and suppressing offensive ideas rather than maybe showing them to be stupid or overcoming them by just having active debate and kind of, you know, engaging with them where they are by banning these communities essentially to the rural area. They are forcing them to become empowered and then more influential, but also more extreme. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a bit like if you had a city today and you had some religious group or something like that, and you're like, just get out of the city. Like, we don't yeah. want you anymore. You just uh, expelled either, them from the city. Yeah, right. either convert or get out of the city. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, maybe 40, 50% of them, 60%, maybe even 70% would convert. But the 30% that leaves the city, you know, picks up arms on their way out, <laughs> gets access to, you know, the lines of food. They, they, they are being put in a position that no, like, sane king would put them in. But the problem is, is that if you look at the online sphere today, they hugely underestimate just how much of online culture is coming from these rural communities or how little online culture is genuinely generated by what's going on in sort of the quote unquote urban online populations. Another reason why so much of online culture and why you see this flip real world versus online is within a community like 4chan within these rural populations they are often fully anonymized because these individuals are afraid of what's going to happen to them when they enter sort of, you know, the, the real world settings, how much of this is going to hit them in real life. And because they're fully anonymized, that means that every individual idea has to compete on its own. Every Mm. individual post gets interacted with or lifted based on its own merit from the perspective of that community rather than based on the status of the individual. It's sort of the truest meritocracy you could ever build. And because of that, you get more creative ideas coming at a faster pace, which is very difficult to compete with if you're coming from sort of these ideologically dulled, we we follow the, the leader moderated online communities. Interesting. Okay, well, here's a counterpoint, though, because what you're essentially saying is like 4chan, they are the sea peoples, you know, they are the they are the sea peoples, they are the the distributed, faceless, nameless, impossible to conquer enemy that raids the villages and towns when they are vulnerable and ultimately kind of takes over. But at the same time, when we look back at history, we look at the accomplishments of the Roman Empire, not the Sea Peoples. So what would you say to the argument that, you know, ultimately it's the centralized powers that achieve anything of note, that make a dent, that add to history's blockchain? Because the Sea Peoples are too decentralized to ultimately add to history's blockchain, to humans' overall advancement. Maybe they stress test humanity. Maybe they strengthen us kind of like a virus, but they ultimately don't have that much lasting power because of the very nature of their structure. Well, I I, I would argue that that was historically true. I think a most intrinsic, and I think even, but I think it's intrinsically and just obviously and measurably not true today. 
Hmm. If Why? you look at where online culture is generated, you look at where does Slenderman come from? Where does the CCP come? What, what is this? The, I, I forget the name, the containment, whatever organization or, or bronies or any major online meme, where do they come from? 90% of the time you will find they originally came from 4chan or a 4chan derivative, like 8chan or something like that. And even the fact that major political movements like MAGA and people say MAGA really was not bolstered. No, Donald Trump, you guys, like history keeps getting rewritten by the internet. He was a joke candidate among both the far right and the far left of the dominant political class of the United States. 4chan bolstered him to the point where he began to be considered seriously by some commentators on the right, which was his pathway to power. Without 4chan, there is no Donald Trump. There is no MAGA. And that was a major sea change in politics in the U.S. You know how people in the U.S. are always like, oh, well, you can't say that Republicans were the party that freed the slaves because the parties have flipped since then. Well, the parties just did another flip recently, not a total flip. Some of the positions were retained, but things like, you know, hawkishness versus dovishness, protectionism versus anti-protectionism. Lots of major policy positions flipped to the extent that I would argue that in a post-Trump world, the two political factions in the U.S. are essentially new and different political factions that I, I think you could largely call the globalists versus the nationalists. Mm. And this new political flip that I think we just got was an update of history's blockchain, whether or not you think it's a positive or negative one. And uh, yeah, this conversation has been very productive. I don't know. I <laughs> I love talking about this. I'm curious to see. To you, Simone, and Aww. I'm sorry. I, I want you to be the predominant talker on the next one here. <laughs> well, maybe we can go through hate mail. That would be a nice thing to do. Oh so, gosh, that's kill me. Okay, go for it. Tune in next time for some delicious hate read by Simone and commented on by Malcolm. <laughs> but I like this. I love you, Malcolm. I love you too.